0: Welcome to Chatter. I'm David Priest, publisher of Lawfare. This week, author Eric J. Dolan on hurricanes and governmental response.
1: Hurricanes make you realize, for lack of a better word, how puny humans are. (laughs) It would be nice if in the future we did, on average, a better job of dealing with hurricanes and their aftermath. The scientists have spoken and they have said, hurricanes are not going away. There has always been an extreme imbalance in the way that human beings respond to risks. And we don't spend money on things that could result in saving thousands and thousands of lives. And I think that perhaps hurricanes are dealing with weather disasters falls into that category.
0: Eric, welcome to Chatter. Uh, thanks for inviting me. It's a tough time for the east coast of the United States. We're in the peak of hurricane season. And as soon as I started thinking about hurricanes and their implications for you know everything from humanitarian issues to national security issues, I thought, I, I really want to talk to Eric J. Dolan because I remember reading <laughs> a couple of years ago one of my favorite books about hurricanes, a Furious Sky, which gives a history of America's hurricanes. And I thought it'd be good to chat with you about all kinds of issues related to these storms that seems like every year we face, some years worse than others, but they raise a whole bunch of issues. Uh, You're not a meteorologist by training, and yet you really capture a whole bunch of angles of hurricanes. How does someone who's written books about America's pirates and lighthouses and the fur trade and whaling. How is it you ended up doing a full extensive treatment of hurricanes?
1: Well, uh, this is interesting. I've written 15 books and, uh, all of them except for two have been topics that I've come up with. And actually, uh, the hurricane book was not a topic I came up with. It basically it's Genesis. Oh, Came about, uh, you remember the hurricane season of 2017 when we had Harvey, Irma, and Maria? Just an absolutely obliterating hurricane season, Uh, accumulated damages of $265 billion, kept kept us all riveted to our television sets to watch this destructive fury rain down on uh, the United States and some other places and after that hurricane season uh i was in the in between books and i was looking for a new topic and the my editor at ww w. norton and the head of sales at ww norton uh were talking about book ideas mm-hmm. and just having survived this horrific hurricane season uh they said you know i think there's a need for a book on the history of America's hurricanes. And we know just the guy to do it. (laughs) And that's Eric J. Tolan. So they reached out to my agent and pitched this idea. And my agent sent the email on to me. And my response was was positive, but I needed to find out more about hurricanes. I didn't know much about hurricanes at all. And so I said, well, give me about a month. Mm -hmm. I'm going to go off and read a bunch of books on hurricanes and see if I can envision an outline for this book. And that's what I did. And uh, I came back and I said, yeah, and I, I had to write a proposal. And uh, getting to the sort of the second part of your question, I am not a meteorologist. I'm not even a historian. I mean, I am, in a, I am an historian because I write books on history, but my undergraduate master's and PhD are all in biology and environmental and public policy. I'm not a trained PhD historian. So almost any topic that I've written about has been totally new to me and but i do have some science background i think that helped me a bit in approaching this book but basically any book i write has a lot of elements that i'm unfamiliar with and i approach it the same way whether those are scientific elements or social science elements or military strategy i just try to get to the documents primary and secondary that best explain to me what happened in a certain situation and then i feed it into my synthetic blender that's my brain (laughs) come up with the outline and then the the different chapters of the book there were parts of this book that uh, were more difficult for me like the section on chaos theory and some of the uh, you know the the mathematics that went into uh, computer modeling but as you know having read the book I don't go into depth about that. This is not a mathematical treatise Mm -hmm. on computer modeling or the ins and outs of chaos theory and how that might or might not affect hurricane behavior. I go over those topics in a general sense because I'm writing for somebody like me who's a generalist. However, I want to be quick to add that many, many meteorologists have gotten in touch with me and love this book. Right. And that's been one of the most gratifying things is some of the meteorologists I write about in the book have actually written to me and saying, you know, this is the best book I've ever read on hurricane history. And I know that a number of schools that have meteorology programs use it as part of their curriculum. So that's really uh, one of the nicest compliments that that I've, I've gotten. I think
0: that makes sense because you have a, a very story-based style of writing in your books where you get vignettes about people who are involved in very various places in history that, that tell the story very well without bogging down in, you know, date after date, uh, event after event. It really brings alive yeah. the the narrative, whether it is about hurricanes or lighthouses or whaling. So <laughs> that, that, I think that is a theme that makes it readable. And honestly, hurricanes are are inherently interesting for, I think most Americans, maybe, maybe not people in Alaska, but you know, and maybe the deep interior West, but otherwise, I mean, you've got an average each year of what, about six Atlantic hurricanes, um, you know, a major hurricane hits the U S on average every two years. And that appears to be slightly more common now than in many decades past. And certainly if you're in Florida or, or Texas or the Carolinas, you're, You care intensely about hurricanes because they care intensely about you.
1: Uh, Absolutely. And I I would actually quibble with the notion that people in Alaska aren't interested in hurricanes. They're not interested in the same way that the people in the states you just mentioned are, Mm -hmm. who can be physically and personally touched by a hurricane's wrath. But there is an element of for lack of a better word, you know, when you're on a highway and driving and there's an accident and there's rubbernecking, people want to see that. Mm. They can't help but be drawn in by the hurricane coverage, especially now that we've got 24-hour weather stations. And most news stations realize that weather, the reason weather is such a big part of most local and national newscasts is they realize that people are intensely interested in weather and what weather phenomenon is more exciting, more dramatic, and more devastating than a hurricane. So it's sort of like the same point can be made for uh, pirates. I think people Mm -hmm. all over the country are interested in pirates, not just people that live on the coasts. And uh, Mm -hmm. with hurricanes, I have yet to meet somebody who is not just fascinated and scared by hurricanes. At the same time, you make a a good point there because the hurricane coverage on,
0: let's just pick the weather channel. Yeah. The audience numbers that go up during a major hurricane aren't due to just the people in the hurricane's path and probably not even largely due to the people directly in the hurricane's path. It's, it's people all over the country and presumably all over the world who want to see Jim Cantori being blown around in the wind. (laughs) (laughs)
1: <laughs> yes. It's it's true. There's it's just it's fascinating, compelling, must-see TV and I have to add there's a problem there, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh hurricanes don't need to be sensationalized, but I think in many instances, and I'm not picking on the weather channel, uh mm-hmm. I think that it happens in many different areas. Yeah. They can be sensationalized and mm-hmm. you can be overwhelmed with the amount of information and that's a a balance that I think news organizations need to pay more attention to because while you want to inform people, especially people in the path of the hurricane, mm-hmm. you don't want to absolutely freak them out or right. numb them right. with so much coverage that they don't know what to do. and so there's there's a fine line between uh, you know informational, exciting mm-hmm. coverage and overload and uh, and sort of almost purient hurricane coverage it just sure. becomes a thing in and of itself and the effects of the latter are that it can actually get in
0: the way of effective warning and action before a future hurricane because if there's sensationalist coverage over some kind of superstorm that's coming and it is hyped beyond the threat then when the threat is actually greater people don't believe it and we've seen that at several points oh, yeah. even in modern history so i, th- I think You have a good point. It's, it's exciting. It's interesting. People want to see it, but we, there has to be some level of ethical consideration as well when it comes to some of this coverage.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that happened. What you just said happened with respect to hurricane Sandy in New York in 2012. There was another hurricane a few years before hurricane Irene Mm -hmm. that was really, uh, hyped up in the coverage and it caused significant problems in New York, but nothing near what people predicted it would, mm. uh, the impact would be. So as a result, uh, Mayor Bloomberg and the National Weather Service and other people who were trying to get people along the path in New York and New Jersey mm-hmm. to pay attention to evacuation requests and the like, uh, they, they faced a little bit of sort of hurricane sensationalism fatigue. And it's its like the... Uh, What's the, what's the parable? I'm totally forgetting of the the big bad wolf or yeah. or some crying wolf too many times. That's right. If you you anesthetize people to uh, the real situation, mm-hmm. and I think it doesn't just happen with hurricanes; it happens with almost any kind of coverage of a of a dramatic event. After a while, people tune out zone out and they also get very upset if they're forced to upend their life for something that in the end is deemed by them to be inconsequential. It's understandable. Well, you know, long before
0: superstorm Sandy, I mean, we talking about American hurricanes, we can go way back. Of course, hurricanes have been hitting what is now the the United States for thousands of years if not longer. Yeah. But without much recorded history, we don't know much about it. But once we get to the British colonies in the United States, your story really picks up because you immediately link it to one of the most colorful people of that revolutionary generation. And, and you tie one of the first scientific advances in, in hurricane forecasting to none other than Ben Franklin. Uh, what, what did Ben <laughs> Franklin do and why was
1: it important? Well, ben Franklin, he's a you know a, found, a founding father, as they say, our founding scientist, just an amazing individual. He seems to be everywhere all at once uh, during most of his lifetime, weighing in on different topics. And he was a very well-regarded, famous uh, scientist and inventor to some extent. And uh, in 1743, uh, there was going to be an eclipse that he wanted to witness uh from philadelphia and bad weather came in a hurricane uh rolled in horrible timing and uh, he assumed that and he wasn't able to to see it and people at the time thought that hurricanes sort of arose and died in roughly one area they didn't really understand the concept of forward movement and also the winds that were striking him were coming down they were going south sort of south east or southwest so he was surprised to learn later that the eclipse was also not witnessed in um in boston Hmm. where his brother was and he sort of put two and two together and he said well this massive storm must have moved from philadelphia up to boston Uh and so he was the first person to give us a sense that Hurricanes could have forward movement, and they could move in a direction opposite uh, of the wind, the predominating the, the wind in your area. So essentially, he was on the left side of the hurricane. The wind was coming down from the Boston area, essentially, mm-hmm. but the hurricane was moving northeast <laughs> towards Boston. So mm-hmm. it's not a you know it's a it's a it's an important discovery. But what happened after Benjamin Franklin? made this observation, is essentially there were no improvements in hurricane forecasting or understanding for many, many years, something which caused Thomas Jefferson a weather nut mm-hmm. to complain that the field of meteorology is one of the most uh, sort of retarded in the sense that it's it, sure. it hasn't moved forward yeah. for yeah. many, many years, Why, while, while during the age of enlightenment, a lot of other sciences really started to explode but so that's uh, that's Benjamin Franklin's uh, contribution and also just think about just think about in 1743 we didn't have forecasts we didn't have GPS uh, people had experienced hurricanes all the way back to uh, Christopher Columbus time and before that the Native Americans and Central Americans and South Americans they had witnessed it for time immemorial. But uh, so the hurricanes were rather dramatic, sudden events. You could get some sense that there might be bad weather on the way, but you didn't know if it was just going to be a minor thunderstorm or a major hurricane. And given how buildings were built back then, uh, the devastation could be absolutely traumatic.
0: Sure. I, I was fascinated to to learn that that same eclipse hurricane that led Benjamin Franklin to to make that observation about geography and wind direction also led John Winthrop to first measure the barometric, barometric pressure and, and realize that these hurricanes were these massive low center systems. So you had 1743, a remarkable year, but as you pointed out, there wasn't yeah. a lot of follow up just because a lot of the scientific instruments weren't there. We, we didn't have the, the collection that we grew over the years such that it was only a few decades later when the course of the American revolution may have been affected dramatically Mm -hmm. by two hurricanes. I, I want to say it was 1780, correct me if I'm wrong, but yes, there were a couple of hurricanes that were very important in the Caribbean and one in particular that damaged a whole lot of British and French ships. So what did that do? How, how did the French in particular react to, to the issues of the hurricanes during that season? And and how did that affect the revolution's course?
1: Yeah. During the summer, of, uh, 1780, there were actually four hurricanes in quick succession, but two of them were particularly, uh, Im- important or actually one was super important. The great hurricane of 1780 before it was, that was the Savannah Elmar, the Savannah Lamar hurricane.
0: You got to figure if they call it the great hurricane of 1780, that's going to be a big one. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah. So what those hurricanes did is they intentionally swept through the Caribbean where both the British and French fleets uh used the Caribbean bases their colonies there as places to reprovision, uh get uh you know get not only supplies but also rest their men before going out on whatever military campaigns that they felt were most profitable at the moment. Mm-hmm. So both the French and British fleets were down there. And they got absolutely devastated, walloped by these hurricanes. Uh, More than 22,000 people were killed. Uh, Scores of French ships went down with many soldiers on board. And close to more than a dozen British ships were destroyed. So the message or the lesson that the French took from that devastating hurricane season was uh, that they didn't want to be in the Caribbean during the next hurricane season 1781 so they spent this winter of 1780 1781 repairing their ships and then in the summer of 1781 they decided to sail north for two reasons it wasn't just because of the hurricanes but uh they were allies of the americans so by sailing north to help the americans during what became the battle of yorktown uh They not only got their fleet out of the Caribbean, out of harm's way uh, most directly, but they also were aiding their allies and it was absolutely critical in the battle of chesapeake if the french fleet hadn't been there to basically stop the british fleet from resupplying cornwallis and the rest of the british soldiers in yorktown things might have ended quite differently but as we know the way that it did end is the french fleet gave george washington and his french soldiers who were fighting alongside him the uh breathing room essentially Mm. to uh pursue an onslaught and beat uh, Cornwallis and his men and capture his army yeah. on uh, in October of uh, 1781. And that battle of Yorktown and that great success really was a major turning point in the American Revolution. The revolution would continue for a few more years, but that major defeat, which was so painful to Great Britain, and not the only defeat that Great Britain had suffered at that point, but a particularly grievous one that that really kickstarted the move towards negotiating the peace which took a number of years and there was still some more fighting before it was finalized in uh, September of 1783 sure. so i think that very good argument can be made that that hurricane uh, in particular the great hurricane of 1780 in october mid october influenced the course of the american revolution but i want to caution you and your listeners you can't know exactly what would have happened mm. if an alternative reality had taken place. That's yeah. one of the problems. You can't have a test case. It's yeah, not like science. Too you have here. a control and the actual event, uh, but you can speculate. And I think that there's a lot of basis for arguing that that hurricane did have a determinative effect and certainly was, was very helpful to the Americans at a critical moment.
0: It brings to mind a novel I read several years ago by Robert Silverberg called Roma Eterna, which was a, a alternate history novel of the Roman Empire that did not fall. And it continued and <laughs> it ended up governing uh, even a wider swath of territory and for much, much longer. And uh, eventually a major, major hurricane ends up playing a, a key role in the plot. And then I realized, yeah, it it kind of did that for the American Revolution too. You're right, the what if is hard to play out counterfactuals are notoriously difficult to get much purchase on, but it's it's easy to imagine that the French could have made a different decision without that. So obviously the Americans are learning that that hurricanes really do matter in some really big ways. And yet surprisingly for the first what, 80 years or so of the United States existence, there really was no federal role in trying to even Predict the weather to even forecast for hurricanes. It wasn't, right. I think it was a U.S. Grant as president in 1870 who gave the U.S. Army Signal Corps responsibility for gathering weather reports over at least part of the country. Why do you think it took so long for the United States government to do basic weather collection and forecasting?
1: Yeah. Well, actually, you have to step back at least a decade or two to an informal collection that was sponsored by the newly created Smithsonian Institution. Mm-hmm. They did, the Smithsonian Institution before the Civil War, did invest a fair amount of money in essentially sending out uh, barometric equipment, uh, rain gauges, uh and early ananometers, other things, to weather watchers throughout the country. And they, in turn, using the new invention of telegraphy, would send in their observations. So the Smithsonian Institution was trying as best as it could to collect data on uh, weather phenomenon, not just hurricanes. In fact, hurricanes wasn't their main focus. They were more interested in agricultural applications and trying mm-hmm. to understand, uh, you know, frosts and uh, rainfall. So they were really working very hard for a, a few decades uh, on on that. And it was a rudimentary system that gave them some more information about how weather worked, and also sometimes distributed useful information to. Individuals, but it wasn't organized. And the Civil War sort of put an end to these informal weather watchers around the country because half the country was severed from the other half for a number of years. And the Smithsonian Institution uh, suffered a great fire and was in a little bit of shambles itself. But after the war, instead of going back to resuscitating its efforts before the war, the institution. Decided this is really something the federal government needs to take over. Mm-hmm. And uh, Ulysses S. Grant administration agreed. And you're right, they came up with, the, they created the Signal Corps, which is essentially Army employees. The Army would gather information about the weather, would report it to a central location. They would try to give advance warning of storms that were traveling over the Great Plains or into the eastern United States. Mm-hmm. Occasionally, they would give some information about hurricanes or major storms moving up the coast. But the problem with the Single Signal Corps is they were plagued by controversy. There was a, a major case of embezzlement. There were a lot mm-hmm. of... Uh, Army men who really would rather be fly fishing than tracking the weather and they would write up a whole pad full of uh, observations and reports to be sent out by the local uh, post office in effect or the te- uh, the telegraphy office and that guy would be off fishing i mean there, there <laughs> are a lot of stories like that and there were a lot of there was a lot of controversy and as a result of that in eighteen ninety one the federal government. Decided to take weather responsibilities out of the Signal Corps and give it to this new Weather Bureau, which was in the Department of Agriculture. Mm -hmm. And that was a significant step forward because by that time there were more and more reports coming in. Uh, Telegraphy was connecting more of the country. And there were some advances in the understanding of hurricanes, not enormous advances, but uh, the ability to predict. What was going to happen was getting a little bit better with regular weather occurrences Mm -hmm. and maybe marginally better with hurricanes. Because one of the problems is hurricanes are coming in off the ocean. Right. And this is right before we have radio. Mm -hmm. So telegraph lines are only as good as far as they go. Mm. There were some underwater telegraph cables that went from Florida and, and the Gulf down to some of the islands in the Caribbean. So you could get a little bit of advanced warning of a hurricane that was coming through the Caribbean and maybe moving up towards the American mainland. But if the hurricane was barreling across the Atlantic and then took a right-hand jog and went up the East Coast no towards Virginia or North Carolina or South Carolina, or even Northern Florida, even if a ship at sea could see, experience this hurricane or be on the outskirts of it, they had no opportunity to alert the people on land to the oncoming storm. So that yeah. required the uh, arrival of radios, of of wireless uh, transmission of information, which absolutely um, revolutionized weather reporting, especially relating to hurricanes. There are a couple of of degrees of irony here in this period.
0: One is that initially this this responsibility of gathering weather reports was given to the US Army Signal Corps uh, primarily because of the supposed precision and discipline of the military but as you've said they weren't yeah. showing a lot of discipline in their in their weather reporting and then going forward in you know 1891 i think you just said that the weather bureau was mm-hmm. moved to the agriculture department um well you know, then you had a pretty big hurricane season. 1893 was, was historic for its devastating nature. And yet it didn't really lead to a real change in government resources. It was a national security event that ultimately did that, which was the, the, um, Spanish American War war in 1898 that actually led to, I think a president being really interested in hurricane prediction because of the possible implications for the us navy and efforts in the caribbean
1: oh yeah president mckinley was worried really worried about hurricanes he was more worried about hurricanes than he was about any Spanish forces that might be uh, going against the Americans because he realized that the power of these hurricanes, they could wipe out the entire American fleet if they hit at the wrong time. But the war was over so fast. There weren't many advances really during the war. After the war, uh, the Americans invested a little bit more money in getting information from uh, Puerto Rico, uh, Cuba, other places, but it wasn't as much of an advance as you might, think especially after the 1893 hurricane season where there was massive devastation along the coast from Louisiana up to uh the Sea Islands and in the Carolinas uh and even New York got walloped by a unusual uh an unusual hurricane so all i can say about that is uh My history working, I've had a lot of different jobs. You ever saw my resume, you think I couldn't keep a job. Uh, I've been a full-time writer since (laughs) 2007, but I also worked for the federal government for the better part of 10 years for three different agencies. And I can tell you, uh, the federal government and bureaucracy is a lot like a battleship and moving it is often quite difficult in the absence of an extremely powerful administrator or executive or congressional uh, appropriations so what happened in the late 1800s and early 1900s there were incremental improvements but for a variety of reasons they the government just didn't invest in weather forecasting the way that it could have but i want to cut them a break there still were a lot of technological advances to come that were going to greatly help uh, mm-hmm. the meteorologist's ability to predict the future, so even if they pumped more money into it, they might have had marginal improvements, but it wasn't as if it they were suddenly going to be unerring forecasters of all sorts of weather phenomenon because they were limited by the technology and their ability to see the future. That makes sense.
0: And obviously, in the coming decades of this story, you do start to get some of that technology but it's fascinating for the, the modern mind. We are used to a major storm hitting and almost immediately you start hearing word of you know, federal declarations of aid and activation of FEMA and the president visiting the area. And that is a very different mindset than most of American history. I mean, we mentioned the 1893 season when a huge hurricane hit South Carolina. Um, mm-hmm. The governor called on Clara Barton and the American Red Cross for assistance. There was no significant federal role. And then the very famous Galveston hurricane of 1900, which was absolutely devastating, brought a whole bunch of financial aid to the city, but it was from all kinds of groups and individuals, not from the federal government as such. And I think that, that is something that is surprising that the, the U S government for all of its core purposes did not really include helping the states with natural disaster management and recovery until relatively recently in, in recent decades, really. So right. when you were researching this was, was that something that surprised you that the, the federal government was really, absentee yes they were doing some forecasting and that evolved somewhat over these decades after decades but but that the role in dealing with hurricanes when
1: they did hit was so small uh yes uh part of that i i think has to do with federalism and the division between the central government and the states and uh, you know an extremely powerful executive didn't really come about I would argue until FDR. I mean, he sort of transformed the the role of the presidency. Mm-hmm. Congress uh, was a collection of representatives of different states, and you one might have thought that the individual congressman or senator would have lobbied for funding for their communities sure. that were hit by hurricanes. But I don't know the reason why that really didn't take place in the mm-hmm. early 1900s, like it does certainly now. Mm-hmm. But I I would tend to ascribe it just to the slow evolution of the power of the central government versus the states. And also there being other priorities that were just more important. I mean, with respect to the 1893 hurricane in South Carolina, part of the reason that uh, there was a lack of interest in aid was racial to some extent. A, Mm -hmm. A lot of the sea islands that were struck were the homes of the, uh, the uh, black individuals called Gulas at the time. They still refer to themselves as that. And they were uh, not deemed as important to save as if they had been white communities. But then again, in Galveston, you're right. A lot of the uh, support flowed in from a variety of companies, but it wasn't centralized, as was the case for Katrina in 2005, where mm-hmm. the vast bulk of the funding that came to New Orleans and the area hit most uh, dramatically came from the federal government. It was a huge amount of money. Yeah. So to answer the question very specifically, I suppose I'd have to write a book on the evolution of federal, <laughs> federalism versus state responsibilities and why the federal government uh, has become so involved in a whole host of activities mm-hmm. that they didn't used to get involved in. But I, I really believe that the ultimate answer would come down to the incredible increase in the size, power, and uh, the finances at the disposal of the federal government over time. Sure. In
0: the, the 1930s, you mentioned the Great Depression. Uh, Franklin Roosevelt did did task his newly created Science Advisory Board to, to analyze the Weather Bureau's hurricane forecasting, and they found it uh, very, very wanting. And Congress did appropriate more money to improve the program But it really went along with the rise you mentioned a few moments ago in in technology. You did have weather balloons in the 1930s, but hurricane force winds don't really work too well with the the balloon technology (laughs) they had at the time. So I think the real crucial development and one hell of a story is the 1943 flight, the first hurricane hunter flight. Can you walk us through that? Tell us that story and just how remarkable it was.
1: Yeah. uh, In 1943, there was a guy named Joseph B. Duckworth who was in the Air Force. He had been a former pilot with, uh, I think it was Eastern Airlines in the late uh, 1920s. And that was just when um, flying by instrument was becoming a real thing. Most of the time, pilots, when they flew, they would have to fly during the day because they would use the landmarks. Mm -hmm. That they were visible as their map, essentially, as guiding them along the way. But if you could, if you had really bad cloud cover and you couldn't see the ground, that was a real problem, and you probably wouldn't take off. So instrument flying and knowing your elevation, knowing your pitch, your yaw, you know, knowing where you are in space—was uh, a very useful uh, ability to have, especially if you were the military which wants to be able to fight its air force in both good conditions and bad. So yeah. by 1943, 1943. Joseph Duckworth, yeah,
0: absolutely. You're right in the middle of we, the second world war. This is crucial.
1: Yeah. So Joseph Duckworth was, uh, he was the flight commander in Bryan, Texas at an airfield. And uh, he had a bunch of British uh, flying aces over there using these AT-6 Texans, which are small open cockpit, uh, planes uh, and you know teaching them some, some more stuff about how to fly and how to be in combat. And a hurricane was predicted to hit uh, the Galveston area. And the brass higher up mm-hmm. was contemplating moving all of the AT-6 Texans and other planes further inland to keep from being uh, destroyed. And the British guys were making fun of Duckworth and the Americans for how frail their great fighter planes were. And they said, well, when we're in Britain and there's a storm, we just lash things down on the tarmac. It's not a big (laughs) problem. Uh, You guys are a little bit of sissies. And so Duckworth, you know, first he disabused them of the notion that a hurricane was just a bad storm because right. these guys hadn't experienced it because hurricanes really don't hit great Britain. Mm-hmm. Uh, the remnants of them do. So after he said, this hurricane is a different kind of storm, you guys are not familiar with it, but he also, uh, placed a bet. He said, you know, I'm going to show you how good these AT6 Texans are. I'm going to fly one of them into this hurricane and come <laughs> back. And, uh, that was not approved by his superiors so he got a navigator to come with him they hopped in a plane they were flying towards the hurricane they talked to a local air traffic controller to ask a couple of questions and basically told him that they were heading towards the hurricane. The guy says, what are you serious? And then he said, please tell me who you are and your, all your call numbers, everything. Cause I want to know who to notify when you don't return. Mm. And so they kept going and he was planning. Joseph Duckworth was planning on only going into the edge of the hurricane and then turning around, not going into the eye of the hurricane. And lo and behold, it wasn't a very big hurricane. And he, he went into the, um, He went into the edge of the hurricane, and then he broke through the eye wall, and all of a sudden, he was in the middle of an eye of a hurricane, which is very calm compared to all that's swirling around it. And then he uh, flew back out, went back to the airfield, landed. Everybody was absolutely amazed. Not only had he proven the uh, strength of the 86 Texans and his own level of guts, but also he was flying blind, essentially, for most mm-hmm. of the flight when he mm-hmm. was in the outer rings of the hurricane. He couldn't see a darn thing. But when he landed, the uh, the head meteorologist of the the uh, the airfield said, oh, this is amazing. Can you go up again? <laughs> I want to see this. Right after he violated orders. And he did. <laughs> he turned around, and they flew up again. Yeah. And this time, they took more detailed notes, so they got some valuable information about the... Uh, the dynamics and the characteristics of the hurricane and he came back and that flight basically ultimately led to the inauguration of the hurricane hunter flights because the head of the weather bureau heard about this and he goes that's just what we need we need to be able to fly into hurricanes this guy proved that you can fly into a hurricane and if you fly into a hurricane and you have some instruments on board you can take readings and it can give you some insights into the character and perhaps the future movements or development of that storm Mm -hmm. so this was a major advance But it wasn't until the late 40s and early 50s, really, when hurricane hunter flights became more and more common. And we still do them today. And they're very important because they give the people on land real time information about what a hurricane is doing and provide reams and reams of data that can be plugged into now computer models to help uh, figure out what the hurricane is going to do. In the future. And what's amazing about Hurricane Hunter flights, and I remember when I was researching this, I had never heard of Hurricane Hunter flights before I started working on the book. And the amazing thing to me reading about these flights was learning that they weren't all that dangerous. They're not a walk in the park, but one Hurricane Hunter pilot said the most dangerous time for him was driving to the airfield and climbing up the stairs into the airplane. And believe it or not, With thousands and thousands of Hurricane Hunter flights, only six of them have ended in disaster. And only one of those was in the Atlantic in the mid-1950s when an entire plane was lost trying to get some information about Hurricane Janet. The other five Hurricane Hunter flights that were lost were all in the Pacific Ocean. And they were uh, trying to get information on hurricanes of a different name. Uh, which we call typhoons, Mm -hmm. Uh, but a typhoon is just a hurricane in the Pacific Ocean. So after all these thousands of flights, only a few have resulted in uh, fatalities. But that's not to say that the flights are smooth. They aren't. Uh, In the 50s and 60s, the people on board the flights, the Weather Bureau personnel, as well as the military personnel, would often refer to particularly uh, gnarly flights as hairy hops. And there are stories that I have in the book of very seasoned uh, airplane pilots and naval pilots losing their cookies, essentially throwing up because they were being, you know, bounced around so much going in to the edge, the wall of the hurricane and then into the eye. So it's not without risk. But the ultimate risk of losing your life uh, Mm -hmm. takes place uh, in vanishingly small uh, percentage of flights. The other
0: amazing things about these Hurricane Hunter flights, uh, in addition to the fact that there have been so few fatalities, is the fact that even with the advent of satellite technology in the 1960s and very advanced ground radars reaching further out, that the data from them is still so crucial because you get the instruments that drop through the layers of the hurricane and are reporting back several times a second, uh, various Mm -hmm. aspects of wind, of of pressure, of precipitation, temperature. And yes, we would be much, much better off even if we only had satellites and radar compared to what happened a hundred years ago, but we would be Mm -hmm. much worse off even with those if we didn't have these Hurricane Hunter flights. So it's a good thing that they are, if not smooth, at least not (laughs) lethal in most cases. Um, Yes, That leads to a different aspect of flying into a hurricane, which are efforts to actually stop hurricanes by doing various things, usually (laughs) with with planes. Um, Got a lot of attention a couple of years ago when the former president made a comment about you know, we should just nuke the hurricane to kind of stop it or send it off course. It was not the first time that idea had come up. That had been coming up for many decades, in fact, since we had nuclear weapons technology. But talk about a couple of those methods that people have come up with to try to either weaken a hurricane or change its direction. And if any of them are known to be successful.
1: Yeah. The the most formal effort, which was sponsored by the American government, uh, was basically to seed clouds uh, with uh, different uh, elements, either dry ice or silver iodide. And basically, uh, the, the idea was that if you seeded the clouds that were enwrapped in a hurricane or in the outer edges of a hurricane, you would cause precipitation. You'd basically uh, disrupt the energy equilibrium of the storm and maybe break it apart a little bit and weaken it. And there was a Project Cirrus and a Project Storm Fury that spanned a number of decades where they had planes that would go out and drop these seeding elements Mm -hmm. into clouds. And the results were totally uh, sometimes confusing. But the one thing they didn't do is prove that we could use that technology to actually change the course of a hurricane in any significant way. But other suggestions that have come along, and uh, there have been many, uh, some people have recommended towing a iceberg, icebergs from the Arctic down to the Caribbean and the warmer waters to cool down the waters. Because as you know, uh, in order to have a hurricane, you basically need – the surface temperature of the ocean down to about 150 feet to reach the trigger temperature of about 80 degrees Fahrenheit. So, the idea was if you had a bunch of icebergs, they would cool things off and the energy source for the hurricane would be cut off. Uh, another idea was to take propeller planes, and this is an earlier idea, mm-hmm. to take propeller planes and fly them around the outer edges of a hurricane in a clockwise direction, because in the northern hemisphere, hurricanes uh, circulate in a counterclockwise direction. So if you fly them around the outside of the hurricane in the opposite direction, you somehow would create you know, opposing forces that would unwind the hurricane. One person recommended uh, putting windmills on the coast and having them through their operation basically blow the hurricane off course which is a crazy idea. Another guy wrote a letter to the head of the national, uh, the national Weather Service or the Hurricane Center saying that his mother had an incantation that he knew would work if they would only bring him up in a plane so he could say this incantation and disrupt the, uh, the hurricane. <laughs> and uh, there have been other ideas that are not so silly uh, one idea, I don't know exactly what they called it, and I don't talk about it in the book, but I read a little bit about it, is the idea is, again, to cause a circulation pattern in the ocean to bring cold water from very deep areas mm-hmm. up to the surface. And there are these long tubes that people have talked about uh, hanging, being suspended vertically in the ocean and going down mm-hmm. quite a ways and somehow through the dynamics of it's almost like a siphoning process bringing cold water from beneath up to the surface and thereby thereby cutting off the energy source for the hurricane. And the one that you mentioned is recommended a lot of times, uh, dropping nuclear bombs into the hurricanes. Now, there are a number of reasons why that absolutely wouldn't work. First, hurricanes are incredibly powerful and dropping a nuclear bomb, even a couple of nuclear bombs. Uh, probably not disrupt the hurricane to any great degree. Uh, The amount of power in an average hurricane is the equivalent of 10,000 nuclear bombs along the lines of Uh, Hiroshima or Nagasaki Hmm. now we do have more powerful bombs today but the real reason you wouldn't want to drop nuclear bombs (laughs) into a hurricane is what better way could you conceive to distribute nuclear radiation over a large area (laughs) in a relatively short amount of time and then the final thing just has to do with hubris. And pride, Amer- you know, Americans seem to think that they can play with Mother Nature and not suffer the consequences. But I think history has shown us time and again that there are unintended consequences mm-hmm. of our interventions. So I, for one, would have no confidence in our ability uh, to try to uh, take on hurricanes with nuclear bombs for fear of what other things might happen. And you know, a last thing I'd say. Is hurricanes a part of the natural system? If we suddenly came up with some amazing technology that could eliminate hurricanes, I have no idea how that might affect the uh, distribution of heat and cold over the entire surface of the planet. Right. It 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 might have some pretty dramatic effects that are even worse than the hurricanes themselves. Mm-hmm. So I think a little bit of uh, humility should uh come into play when thinking about uh manipulating hurricanes
0: certainly with the incantation i think humility is in order but <laughs> frankly all the other ideas you just mentioned whether it's you know cloud seeding or tow some icebergs put some tubes down windmills on the shore and certainly propeller planes even if you have hundreds or thousands of them going in a direction all of them seem to just underestimate the size and power of a hurricane that you could, you could tow, it would be just unreasonable. I don't even know if you could tow enough icebergs, if you could tow hundreds or thousands of them, would that even have (laughs) an effect on how large the ocean is, how powerful ocean currents are that carry the warm water in and then the size of the hurricane itself. It's just, it's looking for a technological solution for a very, very big problem.
1: Yeah, there's a real problem of scale and uh, hurricanes make you realize, for lack of a better word, how puny humans are (laughs) (laughs) and human efforts. I mean, just think of like Hurricane Sandy was almost a thousand miles wide. Mm. You know, hurricanes can reach from the surface up to 50,000 feet Mm -hmm. into the atmosphere and many of them are 50, 100, 200, 300 miles wide. And the amount of uh, power in a hurricane, just an average hurricane, mm-hmm. is the equivalent power to half the electricity generating capacity in the entire world. So it's just, um, I, I think it's a pipe dream yeah. to think that we are going to be able to manipulate hurricanes into submission. Right. And that leads us to the harder discussion of how do we adapt and live mm-hmm. with hurricanes as best as possible.
0: Yeah. And we've proven we and, and being collectively, we not just yeah, you, <laughs> you and me, we we collectively have proven we're not very good at, you know, inhibiting our development or uh, being careful with protecting wetlands and all of the things that we, we take for granted until a hurricane comes. Um, right. And some of that is, frankly, you know, overdevelopment in areas that are prone to hurricanes, maybe not in the memory of any one individual. I'm thinking here of the Miami area, which had had several hurricanes. I think a major one was, uh, Betsy sometime in the mid sixties, but mm-hmm. the growth of the Miami-Dade area and the population, you know, doubling in just a few decades such that when hurricane Andrew hits in 1992, um, very few people had living memory of a major hurricane near the area. And yet It was an absolute crusher in terms of its impact when it hit for a a compact storm, not as big as Sandy, but I'm old enough to remember it. And the absolute devastation in areas from, you know, down by the Northern Keys up to, you know, north of Fort Lauderdale. Um, Talk about the importance of Andrew, both in the American imagination and in terms of what it meant for the the development of FEMA and the modern sense of hurricanes, both forecasting and recovery.
1: Yeah. Uh, hurricane Andrew, as you mentioned, was a very compact hurricane, a very powerful hurricane, category five hurricane. And that's uh, defined as having winds, sustained winds of above 157 miles per hour. Uh, it could have been a lot worse than it was. And it was bad enough because the eye of the hurricane and the, the main part of the hurricane didn't hit Miami head on. It was a little bit further to the south and the communities of Homestead uh, and parts of Miami-Dade County were absolutely devastated. And 160,000 uh, homes were uh, either destroyed completely or, or made unlivable, and uh, that tens of thousands of people were made homeless overnight, and it became the most expensive hurricane up to that point in American history, costing about $27 billion. But the number of deaths were actually relatively minor. I mean, any death is bad, but it was on the order of 20 to 30 deaths, depending on how you define the number of people who died. And part of that was because there was evacuation and, uh, and the like. But how it... I mean Hurricane Andrew on, it, on its on its own I don't think had a uh, dramatic impact on how we forecast or or understand hurricanes although there's a great story of Brian Norcross a local meteorologist who was on the air during the days before the hurricane during the hurricane and after mm-hmm. and he played I think a critical role on helping people in the Miami-Dade area understand what was approaching react appropriately. And I have no doubt that his stellar reporting during that hurricane uh, set a standard and also probably did save a number of people who listened to them because he was a trusted local meteorologist. So in that sense, it really showed the good side of reporting on hurricanes and how it can help individuals avoid the worst uh, outcome. Uh, FEMA did come in uh, the federal uh, emergency management administration did come in uh, after the hurricane. There were a lot of complaints about uh, them not coming in fast enough and hard enough. And uh, president Bush at the time got an earful. And as a result, the, uh, the, uh, the, the response after that uh, sort of uh, ramped up. So FEMA got some good, uh got some credit during that uh, hurricane for its response, as well as some criticism. But the larger issue is Americans are pretty bad in general. And I think humans are in investing significant amounts of money in events that might not happen for a number of years mm-hmm. and are not immediate concerns. And, uh, FEMA, under the first President Bush, was known as a patronage dumping ground. There were a lot of people who worked there who had political connections and not because they were very good emergency responders. It also was often starved of of funds. Things shifted a little when uh, Clinton came in and there was more funding. And uh, for the for the most part, those years, FEMA had a pretty good reputation they had a really good administrator, Jamie Witt, and then when the second George Bush uh, came in, the FEMA was wrapped into the Department of Homeland Security, and its profile was greatly reduced. There were funding issues, and it really became a patronage dumping ground, and was totally um, unprepared for responding to major disasters like the one that Hurricane Katrina. Provided, But I'm not trying to blame individual presidents or administrations because it's not and it's not unique to Democrats or Republicans. Mm -hmm. I really think that Congress and the president and Americans in general there, they don't have a long range view. Oftentimes, it's very the they're focusing on the immediate future. And when you ask somebody, whether it's a government or an individual to invest a lot of money right now that they could use for other purposes for an event that may or may not take place (laughs) years down the line to get them in a better position to react to that situation, it's a very hard sell. And Americans are often very good at responding to disasters. After something happens, they'll go in and send in the cavalry. Uh, But wouldn't it be nice if we had a little bit more forethought and investment and good decision making on the local and federal level that put us in the position of responding more effectively mm-hmm. and efficiently to future natural disasters including hurricanes and that's just a generalization i mean there are individual hurricanes and other disasters where the government local and national has responded wonderfully mm-hmm. there unfortunately are a lot of in situations in which that wasn't the case. And to give them a the benefit of the doubt, hurricanes are massive events. It is very hard to stage a recovery effort, no matter where it is, and no matter how well-prepared or well-funded you are. So we can't expect perfection, but we've had a number of examples of poor performance and good performance. And it would be nice if in the future we did on average, a better job of dealing with hurricanes and their aftermath. And the last thing I'll say about that, the biggest issue, I think, is global climate change. Hurricanes are not going away. The scientists have spoken, even though there there are some people who disagree, they have looked at the data and they have said that the world is warming Uh, I'm not going to get into why that is. It doesn't even matter whether it's human-induced or not human-induced. The world has become warmer. There's been melting of glaciers. The average height of the ocean off the east coast of the United States, especially up around New York and New England, is a foot higher than it was a year ago, meaning that storm surges from hurricanes are starting from a higher platform Mm. and can be – more devastating and what the scientists are telling us is that the signal that they've picked up in the last 40 or 50 years is that hurricanes have been getting stronger and wetter and it is related to the heating up of the atmosphere because after all heat is the main driver and engine of hurricane formation and uh, sustenance so what we're facing is a future a warmer world in which Hurricanes are likely to be stronger and wetter. Nobody, no scientist who's a good scientist can tell you exactly what's going to happen five years from now, 10, 20, 30. But what they are making clear in all of these reports of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change and other reports that have been coming out in recent years, and whenever they're interviewed on TV, they're trying to give people a sense that hurricanes are likely to get worse. We need to adapt better. And also, if we can possibly reduce, I believe that a lot of the heating in the atmosphere is the result of anthropogenic emissions. So mm-hmm. uh, wouldn't it be great if we could reduce the emissions of greenhouse gases and maybe ratchet back or slow down the heating of the planet a little bit? It'll benefit us in so many ways, not just with respect to hurricanes. So it's it, it's really... Uh, it's a very difficult. Uh, it's a very difficult problem, but to get a little bit more granular, people who live in the path of hurricanes can make better zoning decisions right. Uh, right. for their communities. They can build stronger structures. They can pay attention to evacuation orders and not ignore them and not get upset at the government not being correct or a hundred percent on the spot every time you've got to give people a little bit of leeway and slack and they're not going to get it right every single time because this is a complex phenomenon but you shouldn't let that uh cause you to put down your guard and not listen to any government warnings about hurricanes so there are a lot of things that communities can do uh whether they're going to do them i mean some have and i I have to add because this is not really discussed in my book a lot i'm just giving you my own thoughts Mm -hmm. my book basically goes up through the hurricane and the direct aftermath the long tail of the hurricane and how people are recovering and what communities and governments do to improve uh their reaction the next time a hurricane comes is really a topic that somebody else can take up in a book. Right. And it was a, it was, it's a very complex uh, issue. And I didn't feel that it, it fit in this book uh, the way that I had envisioned it, but I still felt like sharing with you my perspective.
0: <laughs> no, and it's, and it's fascinating because hearing you talk through all that, I can't help but think that there's a, a double-edged sword to our frankly fantastic hurricane prediction and the, the, the improvement, even in our lifetimes, dramatic improvement of the cones of uncertainty of hurricane prediction, such that you have on average, when a storm is coming, you have days, sometimes a week's warning that it's a possibility in your area. Mm -hmm. And you can have significant movement of assets out of the area and i say assets of course human assets meaning human lives evacuating but i go back to andrew in 1992 again i remember reading an in-depth story many years ago about the homestead air force base at the time now the uh homestead air reserve station but the homestead air force base that they had the 482nd fighter wing and maintenance squadron there and they flew most of the planes up to wright patterson air force base in ohio others were flown mm-hmm. to to other bases elsewhere, such that, that, that air force base was demolished. It was essentially leveled, Mm -hmm. but most of the assets there were protected. And I feel like because our forecasting and our technology has gotten so good that many people can avoid the impact of a major hurricane in the way that the perhaps 10,000 people who died in the Galveston hurricane in 1900 simply could not. So We get this sense that this is something we can handle. And yet, as we see with the flooding in Texas a few years ago from even a relatively minor storm on a, you know, hurricane severity scale, or you see Mm -hmm. Katrina or you see these other storms in some cases, it doesn't matter how good your forecasting is. It is still going to overwhelm levees and coastal defenses that are made for things less than a once every hundred or 200 year storm.
1: Uh, I couldn't agree more. And uh, even if you have advance warning, uh, your response is only as good as the responsiveness of the local community, the government, their evacuation plans. I mean, all those things working. And we have plenty of examples where they've worked and other examples where they haven't worked. But you mentioned the Air Force Base down in Homestead. Well, when a hurricane, I'm going to Newport News next week to give a talk. Uh, When a hurricane is forecast to hit perhaps in the area of Newport News or another naval installation, what they often do is send their huge ships out to sea because you can handle uh, these big uh, aircraft carriers and other ships in really bad weather. But if they're tied up at the dock, they're going to get smashed against the dock. I mean, they could be totally destroyed. So forecasting has saved who knows how many lives And who knows what the total value of infrastructure it has saved over the years, but it has been monumental. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.
0: Well, in in this regard and extending it to a, a bigger question, I want to bring up a quote that President Obama gave when he was giving a speech in New Orleans in 2015. He said, what started out as a natural disaster, referring to Katrina, became a man-made disaster, a failure of government to look out for its citizens. And the analysis of Katrina points that out at the local, the state, the federal government level, a, a series of failures, as you've mentioned, in mm-hmm. development and zoning, uh, in maintenance of levies. Um, and then, of course, in the the horrible response there. But what what Obama pointed out there was treating hurricanes as a, a governmental issue showing that great evolution. We talked about earlier from the federal government playing very little role to the fact that the federal government is, is deeply involved. And when you have hurricane after hurricane doing the kinds of damage, you know, that they do, it seems to me, I'm, you know, I've come from a counterterrorism background and if we had a, a terrorist group that successfully every summer blew up <laughs> a handful of houses in the United States and killed their occupants, we would be on virtual lockdown in this country and it would be headline news. And yet every few years we have dozens, in some cases, hundreds and occasionally thousands of people killed by these storms. And yet Mm -hmm. we don't treat it as a core national security issue in the same way. We don't marshal resources and treat it like everything changes because of a major storm. Having looked at this whole history and the evolution of American cultural understanding and societal awareness of these storms and what we do about them. What do you think about the way that we as Americans think about a natural disaster, like a hurricane compared to something like a terrorist strike?
1: That's a really good and valid point. And it's hard for me to answer that uh however i would say that because hurricanes are these natural phenomenon and a terrorist attack is not a natural phenomenon and also involves a lot of political ramifications and the perception of an enemy infiltrating our country or Mm -hmm. attacking us at our core there's just a different visceral response we know that hurricanes are going to come every summer more or less and we have to deal with them. They're part of life, just like driving down the highway and realizing that fifty thousand people are going to be killed every year in highway accidents. We still go down the highway and take our chances, and uh, mm. it, it sort of it almost becomes part of the background noise after a while. And I think that makes it a little more difficult for people yeah. to uh, focus on. It's a recurring threat, but they're also in, implied in your question. And it's true, there has always been an extreme imbalance in the way that human beings, not just Americans, Mm -hmm. respond to risks. We sometimes throw enormous resources at risks that are relatively inconsequential because somehow they trigger us. And then we don't spend money on things that could result in saving thousands and thousands of lives. There, and that's that's a, that's a subject better taken up for another guest of yours who is, understands psychological <laughs> how people respond psychologically right. but it's true there are hundreds of yeah. examples of that and i think that perhaps hurricanes or dealing with weather disasters falls into that sure. uh, category if you had a set amount of money to spend and your goal was to save as many lives as possible You know, you can make an argument that investing more in hurricane preparedness and other related technological advancements and uh, the like might be a really good investment. Uh, But Hmm. human beings are not they don't judge all threats equally. And certainly terrorism in the last couple of decades is just a hot button issue for so many People and to to give a, a current example today, this is not parallel at all. But I think there's something in it that relates to the question that you just asked me. Uh, Queen Elizabeth just died. It's an international event. The amount of news coverage <laughs> going to that in the last couple of days, and certainly for the next few days, is overwhelming. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't be that coverage, but by the same token. The war in Ukraine, which is very important and garnered a lot of attention early on, is not getting as much attention, nearly as much right now, especially this new offensive, as Queen Elizabeth's death. And therein lies something about people's attention span, what they focus on and it's not a, it's not a 100% parallel to what we were just talking about but there's something in there about how people respond to threats or stories or what they choose to focus on that is really intertwined with human nature and i'm not arguing that people don't focus a lot of attention on hurricanes they do but we could do a uh, a better job i think there's
0: there's one other element that occurs to me could be a part of that which is as we've discussed, other than the people who think that they can tow enough icebergs or fly enough uh, propeller planes around it or <laughs> use incantations, um, generally people understand that a hurricane is such a force of nature that it, it can't be stopped. It's something that just must be endured. Whereas I think there is a popular conception that, you know, terrorism or war in general, can be mitigated in a different way. Maybe it can't be right. completely stopped, but damn it, if we put enough billions or trillions of dollars and enough measures and security protections, and you know, we can dramatically reduce, if not stop the threat of terrorism, at least from a particular group or a particular region. So maybe right. that's part of the psychological difference is the feeling about you know, being able to do something about the threat instead of just being subjected to it without the power of control by taking extra measures that
1: just, I think that's a good point. Yeah. I I, know that, that sounds right to me. Uh, and that's also overlaying that it's just different people have different, uh, perception of risks and what to do about those risks Mm -hmm. and people are not internally consistent.
0: Mm -hmm. Sure.
1: Nor are governments. (laughs) Let me, um,
0: (laughs) let me ask you as we, um, begin to wrap up our time here about the popular view of hurricanes in, in, in mass media. And I'm thinking here, not just the weather channel and Jim Cantori or a Brian Norcross type story, but in, in popular film. So we've had a few major storm films that have featured hurricanes or similar storms, and they probably have a greater influence on people's understanding of hurricanes than any other source and I don't know if you remember the the day after tomorrow, the movie from two thousand four. Oh, oh, oh yeah,
1: the yeah, that's the one about the superstorm that freezes right. everything, right? It like, seemed absolutely
0: and- ridiculous that there would be a storm that would basically span the entire United States of America on the East Coast. Of course, this movie was something like seven or eight years before Superstorm Sandy, which from a satellite view was almost as massive as the <laughs> ones they were fictionally representing, but the day after tomorrow has this, you know, crazy storm that develops seemingly out of nowhere with of course the one, you know, wonderful scientist who actually predicts it. And then you have some other, you know, the perfect storm and some other natural disaster movies that feature hurricanes or similar storms, but in my mind there's nothing that really is as compelling in the popular imagination as some some other movies are for their genres. And I'm wondering if you think it's possible to make a really good hurricane movie, or if any good hurricane stories almost necessarily boil down to the individual whose house is ripped off the foundations and they crawl to the roof and then it gets ripped apart and they get taken miles away and then they jump on another piece of driftwood, that it almost just becomes <laughs> a personal survival story instead of a story about the storm itself.
1: Yeah. I'm not a screenwriter, but I have no doubt that. A talented uh, writer who's familiar with uh, the constructs of Hollywood and movies could come up with a compelling movie that hews more to the accuracy of the story that they're portraying and mm-hmm. make it compelling because, in the end, what gets us riveted to hurricane coverage are the human stories that come out of it. It's not purely the meteorological uh, characteristics. So I think that somebody could do it, but I have to add that there are a number of documentaries about hurricanes, Hmm. uh, such as Katrina or the Lake Okeechobee hurricane. Mm -hmm. And I've seen a few of those, and I believe there's a great documentary, The American Experience, about the hurricane of 1938 that struck New England primarily. I find those extremely compelling Hmm. Uh, watching. It's not a movie treatment like the day after tomorrow, right. but it is a visual, uh, you know, uh, it's a movie of sorts, which is a documentary. Right. So uh, I'm sure somebody out there could, could do it. And I'm sure there would be an audience uh, for it because as you know, having read the book, there are a lot of individual stories that are absolutely compelling and tragic right. at the same time.
0: Yeah, it's the view that divides America as much as anything else, which is the view of the movie Titanic. Um, And the the correct point of view on that, of course, is mine, which is if you understand the history (laughs) of the Titanic, there are so many compelling, just heart wrenching human stories uh, involving the passengers of the Titanic that any one of them or many of them collectively could have provided an amazing screenplay to do a movie on and instead uh James Cameron <laughs> went the direction of you know largely making up a story with just a couple of elements of the uh, I think there's one couple in particular that that is based on absolute truth right. but most of the story being fictionalized and you're thinking why you know a documentary about the titanic <laughs> in some ways is a more compelling human story than this one of the best-selling films of all time in a fictional way
1: I think so but uh, to to give Uh, Cameron, the benefit of the doubt, people love love stories, (laughs) especially love stories of people who come from different parts of society and are thrown together. So, uh, you know, yes, I agree. I I think that there could be a great dramatic treatment of the Titanic that was based on actual events, actual individuals that people would want to watch. But you know, for what it is, Titanic's a good movie. <laughs> it's enjoyable it's to movie watch. when
0: one watches it with the lens on of um, that the the main character, you know, Leonardo DiCaprio's character is actually a time traveler, and it, it just makes it much more interesting. It's like trying to watch the Star Wars franchise uh, with the the story going in in your mind that you know Jar Jar Binks is a Jedi Knight and secretly mastering everything, <laughs> or or a Sith Lord secretly mastering everything. It makes it makes some troublesome movies much right. better.
1: Well, I, I will. Add, I will add one thing. Yeah. Don't go to Hollywood if your goal is to get the truth about you history. Have a great point. Sometimes they do a good job, but that's not why you go there.
0: <laughs> hey, hey, as as somebody who worked in the intelligence business and has seen a lot of so-called spy movies, I can't agree with you more. That's definitely <laughs> true. Well, let's end by reaching into our chatterbox and pulling out a random question for you. Eric, name one dead political or national security related leader from any era that we could really use right now.
1: Oh my goodness. Oh, okay, well, I'll 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 do it broadly. Um, I mean one of my favorite characters in history who has some very problematic elements to his own personal history, but did many great things and has some characteristics that I think we're desperately in need of of leadership, is Teddy Roosevelt, who's like Teddy Roosevelt particularly yeah, yeah. because of his environmental, what he did for the environmental and mm-hmm. conservation movement. I don't like his view on eugenics and, and race theory, but I like uh, his incredible, incurable optimism. Mm-hmm and leadership abilities and ability to rally people and to fight what he believes in so passionately. Uh, And again, I see that most clearly in what he's done for what he did for conservation, national park service, national wildlife refuge service, uh, which is very important to me, given my, my background. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. uh, I'm always hoping for great leaders to step forward mm-hmm. and help unify our country and uh send it on the right path and of course i think that path is my path but we do not go into that <laughs> <laughs> so well. teddy roosevelt would be my selection as 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 somebody who could who could help us out with his his personality uh right now but yeah. i uh, i'll leave it at that <laughs>
0: Well, thank you for offering TR. That's always welcome here. And thank you for joining me for this whole conversation. I appreciate it.
1: Well, thanks for having me. That
0: was Chatter, a production of Lawfare and Goat Rodeo. Please subscribe to the podcast and find us on Twitter at That Was Chatter.